0: I'm going to do a little housework tomorrow and then uh go fishing on Sunday.
1: What are you fishing for?
0: We're fishing for uh crappie and bluegills and maybe a little bass fishing.
1: You got some pretty nice specs a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah, we're going back to that same spot.
1: Fat asses. They had, hopefully- like, they had shoulder blades on them.
0: Yeah, hopefully we can put some fish in the freezer.
1: How about you, what do you use for fishing for crappie?
0: We'll use jigs, just jig heads and like Mister Twister worms, and then um, there's these these rubber minnows called Blue Ice. It's a crappie mm. bait. Just put them mm. on a jig head, and they work really well.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I've, a couple of years ago, I was using some like power bait minnows, and they were working good. Seemed like they're working just as good as live minnows. We had some live minnows too. Yeah, we'll
0: use live minnows. It almost the, this blue ice almost works better than live minnows. Mm. I, I think it does work better than live minnows.
1: Not man, almost. I love watching a bobber go down.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's old school. It's a
1: thrill, man. Yep. And and that's how I have often fished for crappies with a bobber
0: and that's that's kind of funny because like we had we had bobbers over the side with just live minnows and every fish that took a live minnow was like a keeper there mm. were no small ones every single one that took a live minnow
1: mm. you know in Valdez they fish with bobbers for salmon sharks Oh, really? yeah, they put out I don't know understand how fully how it works, but they put out drums with huge hooks underneath them Wow have and you ever four, caught a salmon shark? mm-hmm no we uh one of the other boats you know we were on three boats out of our place because you know, it'll be a bunch of us and well there's small boats, but one of the other boats saw one this year really mm-hmm they swim just under the surface like a great white, white. Yeah. And they look like, like great whites. Yeah. Yeah. At least how you're led to believe great whites swim.
0: Yeah. If you've watched white, Jaws. Yeah. Now, are they a mackerel shark? A salmon shark? Are they part of the mackerel?
1: Oh, I don't know. I think they're closely related to Makos.
0: Yeah. that, that Makos, great whites. They're all mackerel sharks. There's one more, like a port. Uh, shit, it starts with a P. My brother-in-law catches them in off of Massachusetts.
1: Oh, the one that starts with a P he does? Yeah,
0: it looks like a great white as well. Oh. Poor beagle. That's... Poor beagle shark.
1: I've never heard of such. A, I've never heard of the likes of such.
0: Yeah, it looks like a great white. Just a small version of a great white.
1: They're supposed to be salmon sharks supposed to be good eating like Mako, you know, isn't Mako supposed to be the, like the best eating shark.
0: I believe so.
1: I've eaten some shark. I've eaten lemon shark.
0: Yeah. I went to a buffet and ate, ate, uh, ate shark before that was the only time.
1: Oh, I've also eaten mud shark. That's not good.
0: You talking about like a, it's
1: not bad. It's just incredibly hard to clean. They're you know the ones I'm talking about? They they're in Alaska. At least that's what we call them mud sharks up there. I think that's what Well, that's what how, they
0: call salmon in the Great Lakes, mud sharks.
1: No. No, this is a real shark.
0: Man, I there's been so many shark things this summer. Um I like is it seem like unnerving to go to the beach now?
1: Well, I haven't heard there there been a lot of attacks.
0: Uh yeah, it seems like it.
1: I know they have a bunch of, there's a, now they have a, there's a lot of great white sharks on the East Coast that are marked. Yeah, like, you can track and see where they've gone. And you can put an app on your phone to see where they are, right? Yeah. So maybe that's why it just seems like, but I don't know, It's it's probably been like that for a number of years. But just there's better data. So now people know that they're closer to them, you know?
0: Right. It's like they've been here for forever, but now we just know.
1: Spiny dogfish. That's the one I've eaten in.
0: Oh, spiny dog! I've heard of it, but I don't know what they look like.
1: In Alaska. They're very hard to clean. But uh, lemon shark, i ate, I've eaten two of those in the Bahamas. There's these really distinct lines of red meat in them that are disgusting but if you get rid of that it's pretty good pretty good shit huh yeah i'm going i'm going i'm spending the the weekend in a sweat lodge are you really well i'm going antelope hunting oh how hot is it it's gonna be in the mid 80s which is nice because it's been in the low hundreds all week that's insane Oh man, tomorrow? I'm looking now. It's only gonna be 80 degrees. And I wish it was gonna be hotter though, because uh the hotter, the more thirsty, thirsty they are, and I'm gonna be sitting at a water hole, you know.
0: Now how how far will you set your blind up away from the water hole?
1: About 40 yards.
0: And they're they're skittish, aren't they?
1: Mm-hmm. They are a little bit but not terrible and and they're just so their mood varies so much i don't know if it's different antelope behave differently or antelope are in a different mood at different times like i can't i shot one a couple years ago that he came in behind my blind and i didn't know he was there and i kind of moved him my chair And he freaked out, ran up the hill. That's when I realized he was even there, because I hear him clump up the hill. And then comes around, and this was a big one. And he comes around, goes down to the water and drinks, and I shot him. (laughs) And And then last year, I shot a little one, and that dude did not miss a trick. He comes in, and I have to scooch my chair a little bit, And he's, when I scooched, he's like 50 yards away and just like, can you hear that? Like, yeah. Yep. Like the fabric. Yep. And he's like, oh, and he locks on me for about two or three minutes. And then he relaxes and starts walking down to the water. And then I had to move a little bit more and my knee popped and he heard that it was dead calm. You know, it wasn't windy. And then he gave me another, gave me the stink eye for another two or three minutes.
0: It's crazy. And then they just go back to
2: like, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah, they're fun animal. I I hunted them last year in Colorado and it was, I was putting a stock on and I was like um, walking or crawling through this like high grass as we're getting closer. We're just get, about to get in rifle range and the silhouette of a coyote goes through the grass it was it was so like picturesque you know like you're on the plains of africa and you see these predators stalking through the grass it was just like that it was mm-hmm. pretty cool but it screwed me up and i didn't get a shot at the the antelope
1: oh he freaked out at that
0: the antelope saw the coyote and did not like it i, oh. I don't think that they were alarmed that there was a coyote there as much as they were alarmed that the coyote was in high grass as well
1: oh yeah
0: and they were just really uncomfortable with that
1: they they couldn't keep track of them good yeah yep so uh we have a podcast coming up that this is going to be tacked onto the front of our next podcast that's what we agreed right and yes this is a, and yep. the next podcast is going to be about public access programs in the state of wisconsin there's there's several that we talk about on the program on the podcast it's kind of complicated and hard to keep track of them all there's something called managed forest law managed crop law those programs are tax give tax breaks to landowners for doing conservation work and And allowing public access, you get more of a tax break if you do, if you do, if you allow public access than if you just do the conservation measures. Uh, So we get into all of that. Plus they have uh, their voluntary public access program, which is funded by the farm bill dollars the vpa hip dollars yeah and and that, they just
0: had that announcement right
1: yeah so you you looked into that a little bit so they being the federal government yes and these are funds that are administered by the natural resource conservation service so they're federal dollars and they They give grants to states. States apply for these federal dollars, and then they use the money to compensate landowners for allowing public access and uh, for doing conservation work. VPA in the Farm Bill, it stands for Voluntary, Voluntary Public Access Habitat Enhancement Program. And right now there's deliberations going on in the house and the senate i don't know one or the other or both about what the funding level is going to be
0: yeah they're proposing 150 million over distributed over the next five years
1: is that Uh, how often the five the farm bill comes up as every five years
0: i'm not sure but this aspect the the vpa has this is the third time it's come into play in the last two funding amounts or the the previous funding amount was 50 million over the last 50 million
1: and now it's how much
0: 150 million
1: cha-ching
0: yeah that's that's good news but am i being selfish that i seem like 150 million is still low
1: oh it's way too low
0: yeah okay yeah I, i thought that as well i mean i'm happy to see it go up from 50 million to 150 million but to me that seems like extremely low especially like a guy like whit fosberg from
1: trcp the-
0: yes his his he's quotes, the head
1: of t he's the head he's the what are you president he's the or ceo
0: C- president and ceo of theodore roosevelt conservation partnership so especially okay. when a guy like this is saying you know is quoted in this article saying lack of access is the largest barrier to hunter and angler participation
1: Oh, he's got his shit together. That's I've pretty... talked. I I've talked to him a number of times on the phone. He's a good human being, but and he's and he's definitely right on the money there. Obviously, that is it. Yeah, that's the biggest barrier.
0: And hopefully, others start following suit. That man.
1: and a lack of elk boot camps. We need <laughs> more elk boot camps. <laughs> right. That <laughs> oh. Is- the farm bill does get renewed every 5 years i just so this this must be for the whole cycle
0: yeah i was thinking of you as i was reading this article cuz there's a bunch of nonprofits that are really behind this and not to take this into a dark place but pheasants forever um national deer association they're all pushing for this BHA. which is good b h a yeah which is yeah, good. I'm, I'm not because that when on it them.
1: passes, they can all say that they're the ones that got it over the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, uh, that's that's a nihilistic viewpoint, ma'am. Good for them. Yeah, good exactly. for the nonprofits We're, for standing up. Yep. But it should be one one point five billion.
0: Exactly. They have this hunters and anglers priority farm bill. The agriculture and wildlife working group it's if you read through it I'm not going to go through it all but if you read through it it's a pretty good outline for for what what uh what we're striving for and to my pleasure there's not one mention of R3 in it oh so
1: are you supposed to reach out to your congressional delegation right now and express support
0: yeah i don't Maybe it's in here and I didn't see it, but I don't think that would be a bad idea either way.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Here's, here's my, an email I got from BHA, the USDA's voluntary public access and habitat incentive program is the only federal program specifically designed to facilitate public access for hunters and anglers on private lands. VPA HIP. Is not only widely recognized as one of the most effective public access tools in the United States, it also helps landowners improve habitat stewardship and incentivize and incentivizes restoration practices that benefit fish and wildlife. The upcoming farm bill is an opportunity to reaffirm and even increase our invest investment in VPA HIP. Last Friday, and this I just got this email a few days ago, so. Last Friday, the the Voluntary Public Access Improvement Act was introduced in the House of Representatives by Representative Debbie Dingell of Michigan and Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. If included in the Farm Bill, this legislation would reauthorize the program, increase funding from $50 million to $150 million over the next five years, a Senate bill led by Senator Steve Daines and michael bennett and roger marshall
0: yeah
1: uh do you know that's from Montana? yeah he's one of our two senators yeah senators um uh so those and the other the, the other two senators there from colorado and kansas was introduced earlier this year doesn't go into what the difference in their bill is vpa HIP operates by extending competitive grants to state and tribal governments, grants that are used to incentivize private landowners to voluntarily allow public access. The Voluntary Public Access Improvement Act would triple the impact of this popular and widely utilized program. Since most sportsmen and women cite insufficient access as our biggest obstacle to getting a field, the, the impact of this increase would be incalculable. Want to do more? Join BHA today and become, okay, they just want you to join their organization. They don't say anything about contacting your congressional delegation, though. But anyway, good stuff. Very good. Good and this stuff. Is like- Whether you're big government, small government, you got to put all that aside and think about access, you know? This is access. This trumps all that. This. this is impo- more important than good roads in my mind.
0: Exactly. I agree. And you could look. And I'd, I'd think- rather
1: have shitty roads. I'd rather have potholes in, in access
0: than yeah, smooth, keep smooth
1: the people concrete.
0: Without big trucks off uh, out of the bush, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm somebody that drives a Ford C-Max, which is a hybrid, and I'd still rather have shitty roads and good access. <laughs> I'm gonna start a bill like to redirect redirect funds from the highway to public access
0: and if you look which I did briefly go through these you could see the states that are getting money and where they're spending it and how much land they've they've accumulated and this is I'm interesting to to hear about Wisconsin's program because I've reached out to Pennsylvania's program and like for example Pennsylvania has received like 2.2 million for this program and has added 1.5 million acres of private land.
1: But I what? think I was... There's 1.5 million acres of private land open to hunting in Pennsylvania.
0: Ah, man, I think so.
1: That's a lot.
0: Let me look.
1: Like Kansas, it's 1.2 million. And I thought that was the second most after Montana. Okay.
0: Then I might be wrong here. You're talking about private land. Kansas yeah. has 1. Point what?
1: 1.2 million enrolled in their, in their we program. And Wisconsin has 40, 40,000 enrolled in their through the VPA there for everything. And then 8,000 just for Turkey. You can only hunt Turkey.
0: Okay. This is, this is Google. Um, I I could be wrong. So if I'm wrong, someone will reach out, right? But this says the Pennsylvania Game Commission recognizes this important relationship and created the first Hunter Access Program in 1936. I didn't know that. We currently have 13,000 landowner cooperators on 3 million acres of private land.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Man, we got to get somebody on from... I tried.
0: I know. It says... It says the Game Commission continually strives to improve the Hunter Agency Landowner Partnership. 3 million acres according to this. And I think that that said through this program previously they've added 1.5 million. I could be wrong. I just read it once. But what I was telling you was it, it... What's
1: the name of the program? It's the Hunter
0: Access Program. Okay. But I looked into it and and I think I told you the story, but I'll tell it real quick. So when I when I looked into it, I saw the there's a map. It shows you all the properties that are in the program, and there were some pretty nice properties that are right near my house in my township. And did you know?
1: Had, did you know about them?
0: I did not know about them. No. Oh. And I showed my buddy who has lived out here. He's he's in local politics. He knows a lot of people. And I showed him some of the properties, and he knew the people that own them. He's like. He's like, I don't care what this map says. You're not getting on this property. Oh. No. And so I called the game commission and they told me, yes, you can enroll yourself in the program. And then you get like, I think they're trying to do more habitat improvements and stuff like that. But you get like discounts on your dough licenses and hunting licenses. You'll get free dough tags to be in the program. But you still have to knock on a door. And oh. they, they still have the ability to tell you no.
1: That's weak sauce right there.
0: Yeah. So I'm trying to look into it a little bit more. I made a phone call, and I'm trying to get someone to come on the podcast so we can add to what you've done. Kansas. You've done Wisconsin. You've done. We've done Montana. Iowa. Iowa. So hopefully we can add
1: to have Utah on.
0: Yeah. Hopefully we could add Pennsylvania.
1: Man, there's a lot of impropriety that goes on a lot of abuse even with the block management program there's some of that where they're enrolled in the program but you know you you you, somehow they're always full you call them and they're always full yeah hey stop by and and
0: sign the book so we don't have to
1: well it's no it's that they're in the program so they get reimbursed for letting their relatives and friends hunt
0: yeah, that's shitty. Yeah, that's real shitty.
1: I mean, there's enough people. That's like I don't want to. I don't want to focus on the people that are doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong because there's yeah. a lot of people that do it right.
3: Uh, Our block management
1: program is a wonderful program. It's just like anything. There's going to be people that abuse it.
0: I think block management. I, I wish state. I, I wish it was just across the board. Every state. Every state adopted it.
1: I'm feeling good about what we're doing now. You know, I guess I'm thinking of it. This is, you know, if this proves popular, then maybe we, the sportsmen get behind it and, and we come all, all come together and we start to have some political power.
0: Yeah. I think there's, there's, you know, the more you get involved in this and the more we talk and the more more people jump on hunt quietly and now hunters for access the that program and that organization you realize that this is big and it's growing and i think it's going to be bigger than we've ever expected personally
1: there there's a i mean there's a huge difference between the reception that the hunt quietly ideas get and the hunters for access obviously there's nothing there's nothing controversial about hunters for access. And and so you know with Hunt Quietly stuff there's some people that just love it and some people that hate it. But there's people that reach out to me all the time about the hunters for access stuff. There's now I've been for some reason Minnesota is a state that I get contacted from quite a bit. And now our collaborator um evan Curtin, who lives there he has seven he said i've directed seven people have been directed to him now that want to start a chapter there
0: oh that's awesome
1: yeah and i think i think there's going to be at least one more chapter in montana by the a year from now probably two so yeah if anybody's
0: listening and wants to start one in pennsylvania i I will gladly be part of that but i'm I'm like Oh
1: dude, you're doing enough.
0: Yeah. I'm be a part really, of it,
1: but you don't you don't you don't need to be leading it.
0: Yeah. Uh strap for time, but I will jump in as much as I can. So if if you're in PA and you want to start a chapter, reach out, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh if you're in Wisconsin, you want to start a chapter reach out. You know, that's the 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 podcast we're gonna be airing here in a few minutes the conversation we're gonna be airing with these folks from wisconsin dnr that's the whole goal is that sportsmen there see the value in this and then they start to come together and put something like this together try to grow that program so uh you know you can reach out to me uh and through the the hunt quietly uh email and i'll put you all in contact with one another that's the hope um i know that Access is a big issue there, even though the third, a third of the state is is public land, but that's largely concentrated in in the north. So there's in Wisconsin, it's a third
0: of it. Yeah, really.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: That's impressive.
1: Yeah. So, but there's a need. There's a strong need for access there. Um, in the in the rest of the state, where all the deer are, you know, where the best deer hunting is.
0: Yeah, I was going to say there's that that whole wisconsin iowa illinois they're known for big deer so i would imagine public land is probably at a premium or access to to public land is probably at a premium in those states access
1: to private land you mean yeah yes yep Yep, for sure and then i guess the other thing we're going to mention is that we just finished up all of our work projects for hfa the montana chapter
0: I wasn't able to go, but tell us how it went.
1: We've had wait, we have one more project that's happening at the end of the month that's going to be headed up by a local game warden who's been on the podcast a couple times, Todd Anderson, and that's going to be a fence repair project. We've had some other fence repair, fence building, and this is for hunters for access. hunters for access. Yep, this is our this is our these are our work projects where we go out. And help landowners that are enrolled in the block management program. And we had mm, all together, I think I should have counted them up, maybe 25, 30 volunteers all together this, this our first year doing this. And Man, we that's did awesome nine projects fence building, fence demolition. We also demoed an old house.
0: Yeah, I saw did, pictures of that. That's impressive
1: or not a, it was a, it was, it like was a barn. housing. No, it was, it was a-, a, it was a, it was a, uh people lived in that. It was oh, okay. kind of old man camp building or something. Okay. Uh, we, we did some yard work for an elderly lady whose husband had passed away recently. We did some scouting for invasive weeds for leafy spurge on a ranch so that the rancher knew where the patches were and could, spray them and keep them from spreading i think i'm forgetting one or two but those those were the those were the main sorts of things that we were doing
0: and you were saying you had people coming from far and wide right from
1: we had people from washington and colorado and all parts of all over montana
0: and as hunters for access grows the intent is not to just be to do these projects in montana the intent is to to get these projects, volunteer projects all over the place. All
1: over the place. Any, you know, any state and any chapter anywhere. I'm sure I know Kansas or we have a chapter in Kansas now that they're going to be doing work projects next summer. And and uh yeah, that's the hope is that we can figure out ways to support people that want to do the right thing and and allow public access and kind of try to mitigate some of the bad hunter behavior, you know, and show yeah. some appreciation. People are very appreciative that we helped with maybe their one group, one, one ranch put all, put a bunch of content on their Facebook, on their ranch's Facebook page. Yeah. I saw that for, too. Yeah. So it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. And, it seems, seems to be working.
0: And when you meet somebody face to face versus just signing in on a clipboard, you're less likely to be a, a jerk.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, one thing you hear is that, oh, we don't have anybody come and visit until hunting season and everybody's banging on our doors. Sure. You know, so this is our way of saying that we care a little bit. Man, that's and awesome. It's an experiment. You know, we'll see whether it's enough to turn the tides a little bit, but I'm, hey, ha- it feels good to be doing something.
0: Yeah, that's that's huge. I mean, it, and this is like this is just the beginning, and you already had thirty people come and show up and show support with how many landowners?
1: Uh nine projects. Yeah. Nine, nine projects. Landowners. Yeah, nine landowners. Yep. Man, that's awesome. Oh, 10. ten. We're also building some gates for a guy. So that they're gates that because he's he doesn't like land uh hunters crawling over his fences so these will be gates that is where people can walk through when they're hunting
0: i would imagine gates and fences are probably going to dominate some of the projects yeah right?
1: oh yeah there's <laughs> just always fencing work to be done <laughs> you know and it takes a lot of hands just clipping those wires on is hours and hours know uh, on, a, on a mile of fence it's
0: yeah it's i don't know how they do it.
1: hours i don't know hundred man hours to clip a mile of fence, probably four strand barbed wire. That's I mean, crazy. Yeah, it's it's just. And by the time you get the perimeter cast.
0: done, you got to start again because where you started is probably needs needs repair.
1: Yeah, right. Like the Mackinac Bridge, you know the Mackinac Bridge in Michigan. No, I don't know if it's still this way, but my whole childhood it was. I think it still is. I think I've heard this re- recently that still that they. Pay, their painting crew just goes from one end to the other and then starts back.
0: Jeez, <laughs> it's a five mile long bridge.
1: You know. Oh wow. So yeah, they're just five always. By uh, the time you get to one end, you know, it takes some years to get to one end. Yeah, to turn around and go back.
0: Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. So yeah, and if you want to contribute to Hunters for Access. There's a website and there's a donate button.
1: Yeah, it's, it's huntersforaccess.org. And yeah, you can make a financial contribution through there. And the funds will go to support. Right now, there's only two chapters, but it'll, they'll go to support all the chapters. And,
0: the, and it's 100%. 100% all
1: 100. goes back to yep. appreciation gifts for for farmers and ranchers, other landowners that are enrolled in programs that allow the sportsmen access. And we've had, we we've put that, we we finished that website in in back in March. Our our good friend Atlas McKinney built the website for us. And just since March, with very with our extremely small platform and our tiny me are inconsequential voice for getting the word out. We already raised $2,800 just through the website. Yeah. So I, that gives me a lot of hope. That's not approaching companies and asking for donations, which we're going to be doing a lot of this winter. Um, and this know, is just the beginning, man. Yeah, you know? it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. So hopefully... I th- I'm, my goal is within five years, we're going to be buying every farmer enrolled in a access program, a brand new John Deere tractor. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a little aspirational. But... Make him
0: sign a 25-year contract. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? <laughs> You're going to have to let hunters on for 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else? Yes. One more thing. I am listening to your Pope and Young speech that you did this past spring, and that is going to be published on the podcast.
1: Oh, sweet.
0: I highly suggest if you haven't listened to it or heard about it, Matt did a a talk for the Pope and Young Banquet and uh discusses a lot of the things you hear on the podcast but it's it's a very informative talk and you could go to youtube and and find that on youtube we're also Yeah, to, if you
1: just type in hunt quietly into youtube it'll pop right up.
0: We'll have this episode coming out so today's friday we're going to have the Wisconsin Access episode coming out sunday and then your pope and young talk will be the following sunday. Yeah man, right. good stuff.
1: A lot of listening to me, yammer on. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> Somebody's got to do it.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, have fun uh, in it, uh, hanging out in the water, and I'll let you know how the sweat lodge goes.
0: Yeah. Good luck. All Send right. pictures. We'll do. All right, buddy. All All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.
1: This is The Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt my, my dear friend, John Koontz is here with me today. And my new friend, Jeremiah Goen, who was on the podcast recently. And Jeremiah was gracious enough to bring together a group of folks that work for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. And in particular, they're involved with Wisconsin's managed forest law program. So we have RJ Wickham and Rice, is it Rice, R-E-I-S, Rice? Um, so I already failed. I was trying to make it like seem like we all, I I already knew all you guys <laughs> very well, and I like had to check on the pronunciation last name, um, Ethan Graves and and Nick Holmes. So DNR folks, thank you for joining us for a discussion today. Uh, so thanks, thanks for having us. having us. Thanks for having us, Matt. Yeah, and I'm going to have you in turn tell tell us more specifically what you do for dnr and and managed forest law program in a second but i just want to say briefly what the program is and correct me if i'm wrong on this but it's a it's a program that private landowners can enroll in and they get a tax break it, and In exchange for that, they institute some conservation measures typically, and in some cases, they allow some public access. Is that, in a nutshell, an accurate assessment?
4: Yeah, that's a great summary, Matt. We can definitely uh, tease out some of those details throughout the day, but one addition there is, uh, so Nick and I work... uh, um, all of us on the phone here um, from the Department of Natural Resources, but we we do work in different divisions. So Nick and I work for the Division of Forestry, um, who's charged with administering this program, the Managed Forest Law. Ann and Ethan work for our Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Division. And they have two, two other programs that they'll be discussing as well. So um, it's a great opportunity for us to share all of the private um, land programs that are open to public access. Oh, goody. So there's two more. Two more, and actually, I'm, I'm going to mention one more as well. That uh, the Division oh, of Forestry. So we, we'll have a total of five. Yeah. So,
2: so do, do those programs cover the whole state, or is it pretty much specific to any one part of the state?
4: They actually do cover the entire state, but um, yeah, we can definitely talk about some of those details as far as you know where we see some of more of the. Um,
2: the larger blocks or, or more concentration of is, those acres. Is participation pretty wide throughout the state or is there seem to be more? I mean, you, you mentioned there's some pretty good sized blocks, but like, is there a lot like uh, down in the Lacrosse area or the Madison area or, or uh, up in the Superior area? Sure,
4: sure. At least for the managed forest law and the forest crop law programs, it's really gonna follow uh, more of those rural areas. Um, areas that have larger blocks of, of forest land. are um, in Wisconsin in particular, our populated area is really that southeastern corner, um, Milwaukee extending kind of northward and northwest. But um, really, I think for both programs, I don't want to speak for Ann and, and Ethan, but uh, for, for at least the, the forestry programs, they are distributed a, across the entire state. But as you get further and further north, right,
1: more rural, um, we, we pick up the bigger blocks. So RJ and Nick, would you guys mind starting out? Telling us what your day-to-day looks like. And then after that, we'll have Ann and Ethan do the same.
4: Sounds great. Okay.
1: You want to go first, RJ?
4: Sure. I I can start us off. Um, My name is RJ Wickham. Uh, My title is Tax Law Section Chief. And um, I uh, essentially manage uh, a team of folks. It's uh, a section of about 48 staff. And we're charged with managing uh, Wisconsin's managed forest law and forest crop law programs. Uh, most of my staff are, are all foresters by by trade and degree, if you will. Um, um, but they are specialists in that they are are really understand or experts in this pro, in these programs, and essentially are helping private landowners to really manage their property. And that's the great thing that you'll probably hear from Nick and I is that every landowner we work with, um, it's still their property. And so we really try to find ways to to help them manage their property and meet their specific goals. Um, but there is one um, tie there is that they are committed to uh, producing future forest products. So that's really that forest conservation um, mindset. But uh, um, again, just uh, my role is, is managing the program at that statewide level and um, have Nick Holmes and Maybe a good transition to you, Nick, in, in your role.
5: Yeah, so I'm one of the... One of the folks uh, that RJ oversees, tax law forestry specialist, is is the position title, and so. Um, Folks like myself and the other folks around the state, uh, we do the actual program administration at the landowner level. Um, So I cover four counties over here in Northeast Wisconsin, um, Outagamie, Brown, Kewanee, and Door. For those of you listening who know where those are, um, manage it and and oversee it in those four counties there. And so um, my day-to-day can be anything from uh, reviewing cutting notices that come in, doing new plan review on applications, uh, processing transfers of ownership, uh, withdrawals, if need be, um, yeah. answering general questions, things like that. So a, a lot of different ways a typical day can go for me. Good. Anne?
6: Yeah, so I'm the public land specialist with our wildlife management program at the DNR. And uh, essentially, I help administer policy and deal with systems and mostly administrative. Uh, The Wildlife Management Program manages over 600,000 acres of wildlife areas in the state. um, And that is a portion of all of the DNR managed lands that we have, a a little over 1.6 million acres of DNR managed lands. Um, That includes easements that we have as as well as lands that the DNR owns um, as the state of Wisconsin. But one of the aspects of our program is this private lands uh, with public access, which is our voluntary public access program, as well as our turkey hunter access program. And uh, while we have um, the distribution of these is across the state, the majority of our lands are in the southern two-thirds of the state. Um, and I'm s- sort of the program manager for it, so again, helping with the grant that we re- that we received from the federal government. Um, and then Ethan is going to be our new coordinator for VPA and THAP starting on Monday, but he's been with the program um, for over four years. And uh, I'll let him talk a little bit more about what he's doing on the day-to-day basis with our landowners.
7: Yeah, thanks, Ann. Uh, like Anne said, I'm coming into the Voluntary Public Access Program and Turkey Hunter Access Program Coordinator role uh, starting next week. Uh, over the last four years, I've essentially uh, advertised, marketed, and interacted with landowners to engage them into the program uh, and also administered or help with technical assistance on uh, habitat incentives programs uh, for landowners enrolled in Voluntary Public Access uh, yeah, so a lot of that work is included posting property boundaries, uh, going out and meeting with landowners, stocking survey cards, uh, and maintaining those property boundaries, as well as advertisement uh, outreach events, uh, presenting to local Pheasants Forever chapters, other conservation uh, minded organizations. And yeah, so VPA, currently we are standing at about 40,000 acres of uh, leased lands in the VPA program and about 8,000 acres in the turkey hunter program uh, mostly concentrated in the southern uh, half or two-thirds of the state so yeah in a nutshell that's that's what I've been up to but uh, once I step into the coordinator position I'll be overseeing we have four liaisons throughout the state uh, that administer these programs to the to the landowners of the state.
1: One thing you said you do is you, you said stock survey cards. I think I know what you mean by that. Could you explain that?
7: Yeah, so we have uh, survey cards that we put in survey boxes at the typical entrances to these properties so that uh, users can fill them out and they uh postage prepaid, they can send them back to us and we get a feel for what they're out there for, how long it took them to get there, where they came from, what their target uh, species or activity was in the property. On voluntary public access properties, they're allowed uh, hunting, fishing, trapping, and wildlife viewing. So there's a, a broad skew of activities that people can be engaged in on those properties. And then on the turkey hunter access properties, they're only open for the spring turkey season.
1: Okay.
8: Do you find what that people utilize say, those cards a lot or or, or not? Because I. I noticed that the property that I went to here in Otagomi County, that um, I don't know if people utilize them a lot. I, I do because they're important, but do you know do people know for, know to look for them when they're when they're on these properties?
7: The locations aren't posted uh, currently. Maybe that's something we could be doing in the future. Uh, it's kind of hard to get a read on how many like what percent of people we're capturing with those just cause we don't have a closed population of users, but we get, uh, I would say three, four or more a week trickling in when there's a new property and the people are hitting them harder or uh, maybe it's their first time out there. Those people I think are a little more likely to return a survey card.
8: Yeah.
6: We're, we're typically the stocking them, you know, multiple times a year, uh, restocking them. Um, We have thousands of records of people returning these cards and have really good data on what they're doing and um, that they're actually very happy uh, with their visits. Ninety nine percent of the people um, are overall satisfied with their experience on the property. Um, Harvesting game might be a little bit uh, less. (laughs) Hmm. Um, You know, that's not something that we can really um, uh, sort of factor in unless we help with habitat but um, it could be yeah.
1: that all the people that don't enjoy themselves don't fill out the card though
6: that could be too that that could be too but uh the folks who do send in the cards they are um, generally happy with the program and their experience
1: can you remind me how many how many acres did you say are cart block and how many acres are turkey only
7: uh we've got 39 thousand four hundred sixty seven at, at our last glance.
1: That's the cart block or that's the turkey only?
7: That's for <laughs> the voluntary public access. The, that's hunting, trapping, okay. uh, fishing, and wildlife viewing. And then we've got just under 8,000 acres in the turkey hunting program.
1: Okay. okay.
2: So that, that turkey program is that centered mostly in the uh, southwest
7: part of the state?
6: Southern. Uh,
7: yeah. So we Buffalo were excluding, uh, I forget what the, The Northern zones previously were excluded, but in the last uh, grant cycle, we included the Northern counties. So we've been uh, starting to get the Northern third of the state enrolled in Turkey Hunter access program.
1: That's a substantial amount of land in the Midwest. Like out here, we have ranches bigger than that, Um, but.
6: Right, I mean, we have, um, our land base is 15%, um, you know, government owned. Uh, and so public land versus uh, you know 85% is is private lands. right. So in terms of just for scale, um, you know if everybody in the state used our public lands, that would be less than an acre per person, right? Uh-huh. If every uh, unique hunter, um, just a total number of unique hunters, had uh, used public lands for hunting, they would have 10 acres per person. So in terms of the scale, like, you know, we're a small-ish Midwestern state, um, but we do have a a fairly good land base for our public lands um, compared to some of the other Midwestern states.
2: Sure. So so do you have somebody like in your department soliciting landowners uh, to enroll in your programs, or are they just kind of like voluntarily coming to you?
1: That's what Ethan does, right?
7: <laughs> That's what I was doing. So we have uh, four voluntary public access liaisons, we call them and they're kind of in the four corners of the state and all have uh, pretty wide ranges that they uh, target to get landowners enrolled in the program. They oversee the properties within those counties within their boundaries. So I
1: think it's gonna get complicated now because the next set of questions i thought pertained to one program and now i find out that they pertain to many programs so i don't even know yeah. in this but like i wanted to get a, a sense for the history of the managed forest law program but then i'm like now do we have to get a history of all of these like how old are these programs if somebody's enrolled in it is there like does their enrollment last a certain number of years and they got to re-enroll? I wanted to get a little bit of that. So uh, how yeah, do, I do think that um, in a way that doesn't take all day?
6: Yeah, sure. I think we'll <laughs> let uh, the MFL folks go first. Um, and we can sort of very quickly talk about the history of sort of this. Uh, we have very different um I guess the scale of the number of acres enrolled is very different, and then the way that we go about administering the program is very different. So I'll let the MFL folks go first on on their history.
5: Yeah. So with the size, uh, I'll give you some size numbers for MFL here too, Matt. While we're kind of on that topic, um, MFL has currently just under three and a half million acres across Wisconsin enrolled.
1: Oh, and now I'm getting confused. Oh, I get confused so easily. I thought that. At, we were talking about MFL with the 39,000 and the 8,000.
5: No, no, that's the, the wildlife programs on there, the VPA and the turkey program. Okay,
1: okay. I, I I thought those were the same thing. So those, that's called, those are called the Voluntary Public Access Program.
6: Yep, and turkey the the access turkey program. program. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and then managed forest law program is something different
5: to its own totally separate entity yep yep so managed forest law has just under three and a half million acres across the state currently were you getting all that or am i just being dense
1: (laughs) no i'm
2: i'm 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 kind of catching it it's it's kind of hard to sort out because i'm not used to that many programs
1: i'm just trying to figure out if it's me no no or if it's these guys no no (laughs) you know clear (laughs) (laughs) i I don't know you yet matt but i'm gonna say it's you (laughs) (laughs) all right okay i'm sorry nick carry on
5: and and of that uh, three and a half million just under one million of that is designated as open to public access in there okay
2: so my question real quick is why is it all of it
5: because Landowners have the option, there's two designations that they can enroll in, either open to public access or closed to public access. And uh, the ones that choose to enroll as closed to public access um, have a different tax rate that they pay. They, they, uh, a higher share, tax
1: rate, I would imagine.
5: Correct. A, a higher tax rate. Um, a I think it's called the closed acreage share rate Um on there. And so they have a, a different higher tax rate than the folks that are enrolled as open to public access. Yep.
1: So this guy, I, I must've met, I mentioned on a previous podcast between the one I did with Jeremiah, I think. No, it was the one I did with Jeremiah. A guy reached out to me afterwards and said, it started explaining things to me about the, um, well, you guys call it the FLP, right? Or
5: MFLP. MFL nope. just manage for uh,
1: yeah MFL okay yeah so uh, I'm gonna try to use that from now on uh, so the MFL he said has kind of been from a public access standpoint has been gutted somewhat over the years like it used to be that you couldn't lease out your land to hunting if it was an MFL and now you can to some extent um and that and uh he said some other things that were like it's become a little bit weakened from a public access standpoint is that so and if so how and I was he said that it's the Wisconsin alliance for forest owners that's been involved in kind of constricting the public access component of it
4: yeah Nick I can Matt, probably the, the cleanest way, although it may not sound the cleanest way, is to kind of run through the history a little bit. And uh, Wisconsin has a pretty rich history of what we call forest tax law programs. It goes all the way back to the early or mid-1920s. And so in the Midwest, or at least in the Great Lakes states, that's right when we kind of had our, our, our building booms. So the late 1800s, early 1900s is when we had our what we call our great cutover. And it's when the Midwest was being built, right? Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, Minneapolis. So it needed lumber. And boy, did we have it. But they went right through the whole entire state and they cut everything that they could make lumber out of. They floated it down the, the great rivers that we have in Wisconsin. And it
1: was a shocker. Well, and, at that time, was it was it deciduous mix like uh, oak, ash, maple? No, it was actually, mo- mostly pine. Yeah, white white pine white pine yep Same and we where in my state where i grew up michigan they say before, very right, similar very similar before it was logged it was a squirrel could go from one end of the state to the other without touching the ground just on white pine but i don't know what he would eat because squirrels don't eat white pine i don't think but it's <laughs> not, <laughs> but, not so our, anyway, but
4: i give a i give our uh our legislators and, and constituents at that time kind of a pat on the back because they realized, Hey, that's just not a sustainable way to, to manage your natural resources. Right. So um, they said, Hey, we got to do something. And they, they, they started looking at, Hey, how can we do this? And what incentives can we provide to landowners? Um, what we were seeing at that time too, is, you know, the great depression, people were going to their woods and just using it as a, as a bank account and they're just going in and cutting their high dollar trees to, to pay off their property taxes, to pay off whatever they needed to. That wasn't sustainable either. That wasn't sound forestry. Uh, So we saw a really big need there. And and economics was the driver. We had all these, this rich forest industry that said, Hey, what are we going to do? If we don't have any trees to cut, we don't have a business, right? Uh, So that was the driver is they created the forest crop law program. And that started back in 1927. And that program required all acreage in the program to be open. And at the time, I, I couldn't tell you what, at the heyday, what the, the, maximum acreage that we achieved in forest crop law. Uh, open but Open to uplands.
1: public access, you mean?
4: And it was all, all everything that went into FCL was open to public access. It wasn't, we okay. didn't have a choice. Uh, okay. But what we saw there was that the constituents, the landowners were saying, hey, why aren't you, or why aren't you enrolling into this program? They, they said, hey, this is my property. I don't want everybody and anybody on it. And so the legislators... Um, came up with another program. It was called the Woodland Tax Law, which allowed you know, smaller acreages into the program, and they could they could choose if they wanted it open or, or closed. And that program didn't have its issues. And then in 1985, they created the Managed Forest Law. So we still have forest crop, crop law um, agreements out there. I believe uh, our final agreements, if it's just under 40,000 acres, I think the final of those will be done in 2035. But after uh, the MFL was uh, enacted in 1985, the first enrollments were in 1987. It's the only program since 1985 that a landowner can enroll into. So right now it's. There was it's a the long gap
1: between when it was first put into place and when 12 years between when the first property signed up? Nope. So from 85,
4: it was enacted. And then um, you, you could still enroll in Forest Crop Lot at that time. And then 87 is when MFL the first enrollment started in, in, in 87.
1: 87. Okay. Yep. Okay.
4: And then what happened is at that time you could have, um, I believe it was uh 80 acres closed to close to public. And so if you're a landowner that had more than 80 acres, whatever else greater than 80 acres, you had to have open to the public, And then it changed again, it increased to 160 acres that a landowner could close to the public. And the current right now is 320 acres that
1: a landowner can close to the public. So that- And that's only since 2015 that it's been that high, right?
4: That's correct. And actually it it enacted in 2017 when when that would have began. But uh, so, but the act was a 2015 act
1: um, that changed that. Yeah. So like everything else in the world. Everywhere else, it's getting the access is getting tougher. So, do, do any and, of
2: these programs in the state compensate the landowner for enrolling, or is it strictly through tax breaks? So, for
4: our program, the
2: managed forest law
4: program, it is strictly a, a tax incentive, and, and it's really unique is that the legislators, when they created this, it actually gives the department, the Department of Natural Resources, the authority to it's actually a tax exemption. So, we actually remove them from the regular tax roll for the acres in the program and then we assess a an acreage share rate and that's for when it's open and then if it's closed they have an additional closed acreage fee.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, okay. So, so here's my next question. Originally it was the these programs came into place came into existence because there was a concern about the way land was being managed and the timber was being managed. Do, do landowners still need those incentives to manage uh in a ecologically sustainable way, or would they still be raping and pillaging so as a even, prof- even if you didn't have the tax incentive?
4: As a professional forester, I, I wish we didn't have to have the tax incentive, but We do,
1: we do need that tax incentive. Um, There'd be be a lot of landowners would be inclined, inclined to going back to whatever they like clear cutting or whatever. Or,
4: or it actually could be, it could be where there just wouldn't be landowners doing any cutting at all. So it could be on both ends of the extreme. I
1: see. Okay.
4: And what, what this program does is the design here is to have a consistent, sustainable flow of forest products coming to market. And uh, the way this program, again, because it's a tax exemption, um, it's really got to social, provide that full society benefit, right? And so that public access was one of those social benefits that this this program was was providing. Now the other benefits is when we practice sound forestry, it's the clean air, it's the clean water, it's the economics, it's the wildlife habitat, it's those all those other things that um, these private forests are providing that are also a social benefit. Uh, so there is that complaint out there that that open access has been declining with this program. And um, do we need to have better incentives? When, when we first started the program, there was only a dollar difference in incentives as far as your tax break. Um, now it's, it's a $10 um, tax break, which sounds kind
1: of silly. $10 but, um, per acre dif- more if you allow public access.
4: So it's ten dollars. You 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 pay ten dollars more if you close it. Exactly, so it depends how yeah. you how you look at
1: it. Yeah. Which which is a pittance compared to what they could get to leasing it to somebody for hunting. Potentially, and and so we oh, we do allow so leasing. So, I mean, can't they get like for? Can't they get thousands and thousands of dollars to lease it out for hunting? Like a like a three hundred acre parcel. You give them. They get three hundred bucks extra. If they allow public access, but they could get way more than 300 bucks if they leased it out, couldn't they? Again, not
4: knowing what that rate is, but it's definitely competitive. There's other, there's other interests there that, that would allow them to do that or, or, you know, added value to their land and how
1: how they utilize it. Um, what do you, what do you think, Jeremiah, based on what you see, would a 300, Uh, would they, what would that? With that 300 acres, would you make more in your part of the world? You would absolutely make
8: more. In in my experience, you would make more. And that was going to be one of my questions, is if you see a a drop in this program, people leaving it because they can get so much more money leasing it out to hunting or or hunting groups. Um, Because, I mean, they can make a lot of money on it. I mean, there's there's, uh, an app now called Hunting Land for Rent by Owner. It's like verbal, but it's for hunting. (laughs) So, I mean, people are making a lot of money off of it. I mean, if you look at some of the properties that are even for sale around here, there's 40 acres down the road. That's a hundred and some thousand dollars. It's not even buildable, but it's hunting property. So they can charge. I, I, I may have caused some confusion.
4: So oh. there isn't an, is an incentive not to enroll in the MFL because actually the MFL, if you have it closed to the public or open to the public, you can still lease your land. Right. Oh.
1: What do you have to, but, uh, uh, um, okay, what was the bit about 300 and some acres? Like, you,
5: you, there, own, there's you can, 320 acres max that you can close under one ownership.
1: Okay. So you, if you owned 600 acres, you could only, if you owned 640 acres, you could close 320 of it and lease it out. Correct. Correct. And if you the if you own six thousand acres, it'd still be only three hundred and twenty. Correct. Okay. Yeah. The closing Okay. So right now, did, uh, RG, you said it's about a third of it that's open to public access. It's it's
4: just under a third. Yep. And that number continues to decline. Um. And as again, it's it's a uh, a lot of it. And I appreciate that was one of your questions and one thing that. I think all the programs here today would like to talk about just hunter interactions on these properties as, as a potential option, you know, opportunity to increase private landowners to allow more access. A lot of times that's what we're seeing is that they just don't want to allow anyone on there and, and those individuals disrespecting the property.
2: Yeah. So, 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 so we're, we're right back to poor, to poor hunter behavior is one of the reasons why the private landowners are pulling their lands out of the, out of the access program. Yeah.
5: yeah definitely, from, it's One. Yep. Yeah. Um, You know, that's a very common uh, issue that I hear from, from landowners when they submit an open close change request to me to, to change it from open to close. Um, you know, we don't require that they tell us why they're doing it, but a lot of times people volunteer the information and, and yeah, poor Hunter landowner interactions is is very very common complaint. Does,
2: does your state have many non residents coming there to hunt?
4: Anne, and would probably be better to to answer that question. I, I we do have many, but I just um, Anne, you probably may have a number or maybe a, an estimate.
6: Don't, I'm sorry, I don't have a, an estimate on that, but it's significant. Um, I would say we have folks coming in from from the Midwest all the way out, you know, folks visiting um, from the the coasts. And so yeah, it's it's definitely a significant portion. You know, Our program is definitely different. A lot of people disenroll from VPA and these are very short-term leases. So MFL, there are like 25 years, right? You're enrolled in it for 25 years. Either
5: 25 or 50. Yep. Okay. Okay. And
6: then with with VPA, they're three-year leases. So they're temporary. They're short-term. People can come in, they can open up their property for a certain length of time and then disenroll if they want or continue with us. So with v-
1: you're calling it, you call it a, a lease. So with VPA, it's, it's not a tax incentive. It's a, it's, it's,
6: we are paying the landowners, a lease payment for them to open their land. To the
1: okay. Company. And that's funded yep, by license, license sales or is that what it.
6: So, no, this is through the farm bill. So, well, um, for the last three farm bills, they have put money into uh, the VPA HIP uh, program. So, that's federal um, farm to, bill, right? It's federal farm bill money. Okay, and then now I know a little
1: bit. States. Now I realize yep. I know a little bit about this. Matter of fact, I think I'm going to have somebody on uh, in May to talk about that program. It's administered through the NRCS, right?
6: Correct. It was initially administered by uh, Farm Service Agency in the first go round, but now for the last uh, two farm bills, it's been through NRCS. Okay. Um, and so we are fully funded and rely on that farm bill funding to keep the program going here in Wisconsin, as well as many other states in the nation and certainly in the Midwest. So, um, so yeah, it it is important.
2: How how does that how does that payment go to the go to the landowner? Is it by how many hunters show up or do, do you look at the property and say, hey, we'll give you X for the season? I mean how so, how is it how is it figured?
6: Yeah, so for VPA, um there's different lease rates or cover type rates. So Um, You know, our highest quality wetlands and grasslands that are enrolled in some sort of federal program, like the Environmental Quality Incentive Program or um, Conservation Reserve Program, they'll get $20 an acre. For folks who have forest land, they get $15 an acre. um, Just your general grassland, very um, maybe monoculture or wetland, um, ten dollars an acre, and then farmland is is disincentivized, I would say, uh, but we do still pay for it. It's at three dollars an acre, and then if um, someone stays in the program for three years or more, they get a, another ten dollar an acre bonus. Who?
2: So, Go ahead.
6: Yeah, so that's how we pay for it. And then with our um, turkey hunter access program, it's just a $5 an acre straight. Um,
2: Who uh, manages the the number of hunters per day or week? or that We can- do
6: not manage it. There is so no they, they still go managed to access. They do not go to the landowner. So we have uh, maps of our properties. We sign our properties. Um, people can walk on to these properties. They are actually... Um, you know, we ask them not to contact the landowner. The landowner enrolls in this program specifically knowing that they're allowing public access.
2: So, so, so when you ask them to perfect. not contact the landowner, uh, would that also then extend to disencourage them from thanking landowners later on in the season or after the season?
6: That's a good question. I know that when people, the people who send in our surveys are always very grateful for um, to those landowners and will often write that on the survey cards, that they are really grateful for the program and for the landowners enrolled.
1: Yeah, yeah so, it seems like it'd be nice if, if, even if you really wanted to keep that in place, you could have them say, send us like, send us Christmas cards that yeah. include the landowners. <laughs> yeah, so, right. so, so, so our access group actually encourages...
2: Uh, hunters to sign up and and we offer uh, uh, work days if you want to call them that where we would go help with fencing and or this is what he's
1: processes. talking about is Montana hunters for access which yeah. we're, we're yeah. gonna talk about in detail yeah. in a minute. So yeah. okay, okay. Uh, yeah before we before we attempt any forward moves I want to <laughs> just very <laughs> briefly hear about these other programs.
3: So no that'd there? be great. I think
4: you know, we we can maybe just uh yeah, Ben or or Ethan want to continue with VPA and THAP. I guess one thing I just wanted to mention is that some people always say, Well, geez, why would you want to be to, to allow MFL landowners to lease their lands? Well, it it actually um I give credit to the wildlife program is trying to make all of our programs complementary. And so a landowner that's closed MFL can actually sign up to enroll in VPA or THAP. And some of the incentives there is that, Hey, it's not a 25 or 50 year commitment is they can go, they can go into it, try it for three years. And if they like it, they can extend it. So there's a little bit more control on on that lease than if they just go into MFL open, they're locked in for 25 years. Now they can, they can elect to change that designation. Um, But again, um, we have opportunities here in Wisconsin to provide that, that access. So at different Different rates and and different incentives, and it just may fit a different landowner a little bit better. So, just kind of want to put that out there that they are connected, and and we try to make sure that they do um, kind of provide that partnership rather than one
1: lander having to choose one or the other. Oh, you'd be enrolled in two at the same time. Who would? Correct. Like who wouldn't? You know. Right. Like, yeah. Um, I didn't know that. All right. So. Okay, w- weren't there more programs than we said? There was five or four? or we- Yeah, so there's
6: VPA, um, yep. there's Turkey Hunter Access Program, okay. there's Managed Forest Law, and then there's the Forest Crop Law. Was there anything okay. else? Okay, no,
1: no that, okay,
4: okay. I think no, there, there, there is one more, and, and just have a little bit of information on it, but here in Wisconsin, um, it's very similar to other states that have uh, a forest easement. Here in Wisconsin, um, the State Department of Natural Resources, we administer the Forest Legacy Program, which is funds from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service through the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And here in Wisconsin, we have about, uh, I think it's just about 330,000 acres enrolled in, in that program. And that's very similar to... Um, any other conservation easement. And so it's still privately owned, but the state is purchasing that easement to provide that open access. And it's t- here in Wisconsin, it's it's the five big, um, it's, it's hunting, fishing, hiking, sightseeing, and cross-country see- skiing. And that's the same access that we provide in the MFL program. So you can't just go on there, um, you know, just to ride your four wheeler or to ride your horses. Um, it is restricted on, on what, um, a recreational user can, can, can do on
1: these properties. Okay. So that's like an easement where the, the landowner maintains ownership. He can still grow crops and, and, and harvest timber. And, but he allows the big five. So the big
4: five and, and- and and th- and these easements are your typical where it's a perpetual easement, so it, it is it's in infinite time, and uh, it does help with. Um, and again, their forest legacy, so we're trying out we're targeting large blocks of continuous forest. And uh, right now, it's just at just under I think three hundred forty thousand acres. And in projection, is we'd like to see another three hundred thousand acres um, in in the forest legacy program. By what date? There is no date, um, but, uh, and, and again, it's uh, just looking at accessible areas. And so the, the state does have focus areas of where we're targeting, where we're, you know, the biggest bang for the buck for, for the state would be. Um, and so that's our realistic goal is that 600,000
2: acre threshold. Okay. So, so has there ever been question on the value of land once enrolled in an easement program versus what it would be worth had they not enrolled in it on a future sale of the property
4: oh absolutely it's it's definitely a a big factor for for the current landowner at the time but also looking long term down the road the value of that land. So it, it's definitely, um, especially when the state or any government is looking at purchasing easements, it's definitely a, a hot topic, um, you know, as far as what that's pre- potentially limiting that that specific land in the future, right? Um, maybe development, um, but that's definitely one of the, the tenets of these easements is to prevent development in the future and maintain it
1: in forests. My wife, her ranch is in a Her family's ranch is in a nature nature conservancy conservation easement. And she often, like in an offhand way, says, Yeah, it's 4,000 acres, but it's not worth anything because it's in an easement. Hmm. Uh, It it does worth more. To humanity, it's worth more because it is in an easement. So, um, okay, so. I want to make sure there's no more hanging chads before we go into the what can the sportsman do to support the program component of the discussion where we're going to talk about what we're doing here in Montana. John and Jeremiah, you guys have any more questions?
8: Um, I guess with you went into the abuse of property a little bit, Um I would think that would scare a lot of people away. However, I mean, there's bad people everywhere, but what – Are there any consequences for those people that get caught doing that? I mean, I know it could be trespassing and stuff, but since they're enrolled in a DNR program, is it worse, the punishment worse for that, or what what are the consequences for that?
5: So there isn't much that. In, in some of those cases, that goes back to the landowner so much as punishment, but it does uh, get elevated to law enforcement. And and so those enforcement, if, if there's trespassing issues, don't actually, I'm not the one out there going, doing anything like that. I don't have law enforcement credentials. It gets referred to, to the sheriff's office and the wardens there mm. um, and really goes more towards the... Offender, the, the offending hunters out there are the ones that that get that more so than the landowners. Um, if there are issues with landowners restricting access or you know um, restricting activities out there, because much like the VPA, um, we the, you know, there's the hunting, fishing, hiking, cross country skiing. You can't restrict access out there. Um, there have been is- instances where landowners have been. Uh, required to close their access from open to closed and and change that designation if there's restrictions out there. So um, really is situationally dependent.
8: Okay. So these hunters that uh, I guess I think is hunting specifically because that's what I do. If they're busted on these properties, you know, disrespecting the property and whatnot, are they, is there consequences for them hunting because of it? Like restriction of hunting rights, privileges, or, 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 what, you know, if there's anything of that.
4: So it, it depends on the violation.
8: Yeah.
4: And a lot of times these complaints come in to our, to our wardens and our wardens uh, do take these pretty seriously. Um, any of our hunting uh, regulation violations, they do investigate. Um, so a lot of times it may not be because they, um, Drove their vehicle onto an MFL property. That's not what the, the warden's going to look for. It, it probably leads to a higher um, violation that they'll target. Then, so, um, but at least for MFL, um, there's it's it is a it's a law like the name um, um, entails. Um, Chapter seventy-seven does have very specific um, um, structures and violations and penalties to those. But there's nothing to a user. Um, that we would go back to chapter 77 and say, Hey, as a, as a recreational user, here's the rules that you apply to, and you're susceptible to a a citation or a civil forfeiture against 77, most of our penalties are back to the the landowner, which we do take seriously as well, because it's one of the tenants is that, Hey, if you are enrolled in this program and it's open to the public and we find out you're pushing people off or you're harassing people so that they're not successful in their ventures, um, we do have a, a civil forfeiture there And then also can, um, like Nick said, um, move to closing the land, or we can actually go to withdrawing that land. And um, for us, it's just like any other enforcement. It's it's a stepped enforcement. So that forfeiture is designed to get voluntary compliance in the future. But if that doesn't work, um, yeah, we may be um, involved in a much um, larger scale as far as removing that land from the program. And when that happens, it's not just that you're out. You actually have to pay back taxes. Um, So there is a significant penalty if you've been in in the program for a while, um, it's capped at 10 years, but, um, if you're right at nine years or 10 years or 20 years, um, it's based on the current rate, your current assessed rate multiplied by 10. So, you know, if you, it's always going up, so it's not just paying back taxes. It is a, it is a a penalty. Okay.
8: All right. Thank you.
6: I think, you know, for us, um, we don't have the same sort of Uh, at least our landowners are telling us that they're not getting, you know, out of the program because of the users. Yes. There's always like, you know, people who are bad actors. Um, We work with the landowners for proper signage. Um, You know, we tell them to call the the local law enforcement right away if there's issues happening. Um, But, you know, we do pay for damages. Um, It has to be, you know, related to having people on the property, Um, So the landowners can at least be assured that, you know, um, if something gets stolen or damaged, crops are damaged, we can look into that and and pay for those damages. And then, you know, there's also, um, uh, I guess, an assurance from our state statutes. um, If you get paid a, a government stipend or lease or payment to have these lands open to the public, you, you really don't have any liability um, unless you're actually going out and hurting someone. But if someone hurts themselves, they fall from a tree stand, they,
3: mm.
6: whatever they do, um, they're not liable. Um, okay. They are opening their land in good faith for a, a government, modest government payment. And, um, you know, there's an assurance there for, for our landowners as well. So okay. um,
4: thanks for bringing that up. And I think that's a, I'm glad yeah. you mentioned that because I think even in, in MFL, folks are nervous about that liability. And again, with Wisconsin's mm-hmm. recreational um, law, um, it does remove them from that liability. Obviously, again, if they're putting out booby traps, things like that, then that's totally different. But if someone yeah falls out of their tree stand because they're on open MFL, it, it's it's not coming back to them. So
8: Okay. Yeah, that's, and that's good, something good I, think... I like that. Because um, I know John had said on a previous podcast about um, you know, hunters accessing people's property and kind of violating things, you know, like leaving their <laughs> excrement at the gate and stuff like that. We, so we I, I don't know that doesn't problem. happen here, I hope, but um, I guess that just kind of I was wondering, you know if if that happened here at all, and if that was a big issue, it sounds like it's a bigger issue out west
2: so so how much is there a cap on the amount of funding? that a landowner can receive for opening his property to the public?
6: Um, not that I'm aware of, um, you know, it really just depends on how much property they have and how much oh. they want to enroll. We, you know, the, really the grant is going to sort of, uh, you know, be the limit, like how much can we actually support, you know, over time and um, having 40,000 acres sort of annually. Um, so the grant is really the limiting factor there for our program, um, in terms of that liability clause, there is no threshold. Like if someone was to just open their property to a a private lease, for example, and Ethan, why don't you talk about that? Like there's, there's a little bit of liability there over a certain threshold for that landowner.
7: Yeah, I think it's if, I think it's over $2,000 if you have a private lease, uh, if you're accepting money to allow people onto your land or I think any activity you are liable for damages that they can cause to themselves on the property. So that's uh, something I think these programs really have a leg up on the private lease market with.
1: You're saying, okay, if I'm a landowner and I got and I'm enrolled in in NFL and somebody falls out of their tree stand, there's no way I'm going to get sued. Um, But if, I'm the same landowner and instead I've leased my land out to a hunter and that hunter falls out of the tree, then I'm liable to up to $2,000. Am I understanding that correctly?
7: I think if you're accepting a payment over $2,000, I, I might be a oh, little okay. off on that, that. Okay, then you- But,
3: but then, yeah, the, you're, you're gonna need liability insurance.
1: Way more than the two so grand.
7: If you're not properly insured. I, I asked my question because
2: out here we base our payment to the landowner on what they call hunter days so example might be if you had 10 hunters on this piece of property at a dollar a day they're going to get ten dollars so that I mean, that's just a, that's just an example of how it would work but you guys are are paying per acre enrolled. so yep. they they know what they're getting up front where our guys out here at the end of the year, they look at the sign in slips and and you may get more this year than you did last year It's based mm-hmm. on how many hunters showed up on your property. Th- that's, yeah, that's, why, that's why I asked that question, because to me, all of these programs would be far more successful if they could compete directly with what outfitters and lease companies could pay so that if we were all on the same playing field, uh, then it's just a matter of choice for for a landowner and and I love the idea where if you're going to lease your land and accept more than $2000 in that example uh then 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 the landowner can now become liable for things uh so that, that's just interesting to me how that works so so out of all of your people uh, in the state uh what's the highest figure that one is getting paid uh, to to allow his property
7: into public
3: Oh gosh! I'm not sure who's
7: getting the most.
6: I mean, it really depends on the cover of that property. You know, we have we
7: have a a
6: 150 60 acre property um, in the north that is getting a $20 an acre payment um, for for the land because they're in the uh, the wetland reserve enhancement program
2: so so, so an easement
6: a wetland easement on it so, so so
2: your dollar amount per acre is also based on the quality of the land
3: right so
2: clearly Correct. clearly you're not going to pay much for a, for an anthill but you're going to pay a lot more for like a good cattail slough with some pine trees and 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 you know uh, uh so so when you look at those to assess a dollar amount do you look at the kind of wildlife that, that that land harbors?
7: We look strictly at the the cover type from the satellite view and uh, okay. whether or not it's enrolled in a conservation or if there's active conservation happening on the property. Right. On so, yeah, you
1: said land, the lowest you pay is for farm ground.
7: Yeah, so you could have like a 1,000 acres of farm. We wouldn't enroll a 1,000 acres of just farmland, but uh, that would pay less than... You know, three hundred acres of uh, grassland.
2: That's
1: interesting. Okay, okay. Unless there's anything more pressing, I'm gonna I'm gonna transition us into the talk about how sportsmen might be able to help help grow these programs. Because only
4: only thing I would say, Matt, is we're you know for any listeners out there, definitely provide just that high level. uh, Definitely don't take our you know this this, uh, podcast as, as legal advice. Um, you know, even in, in any, our society is such a litigious society. Someone's going to try to do something. Um, but here in Wisconsin from, with our recreational user laws, they're designed there to, to, to help that recreational use or provider, um, be less liable, right? I mean, people sue people for all sorts of things and, and it may not be legal standing, but it still ties you up and stuff. So there's definitely still a concern. I don't want to wash that away from a concern, but I think Anne brings a good point that, you know, that I learned something here today too, that, Hey, their programs do provide some of that financial assistance. If something does go awry with a, a recreational user, again, I think that's one of those benefits where a, a landowner may not want to go MFL open, do MFL closed, and then enroll in a VPA or THAP. Um, again, a lot of our Wisconsin um, um, landowners are huge whitetail hunters, and if they're not, their kids are, their grandkids are, or someone is, and they're they're all wanting to hunt that piece. And so that's again where they they may not want it to be open public access, but maybe they're going to you know what they they absolutely despise turkeys, and the more people that come out and shoot their, the turkeys on their property, they're going to sign up for a THAP and, and not go MFL open. So yeah, I think again a lot of for listeners in Wisconsin or folks looking at buying land in Wisconsin, just kind of, again, there's lots of programs out there for you in Wisconsin and and, uh, the department is here available. So if there's questions, reach out to us. And we'd love to love to talk to you. Um, My specialist uh, walked the land with the landowners um, uh, at their request um, and, and our, continuously answering questions. And, and if we don't know the answer, we're, we're connected on with a wildlife biologist or maybe it's another resource professional. Uh, so that's the other benefit of being in these in these programs is you have resource professionals, foresters, biologists available to assist you with some of that habitat management um, on your property.
1: Yeah, I, I issue a listen at your own risk warning <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the introduction to every episode. So you don't need to worry about um, Uh, leading people astray okay
6: i think my uh computer yeah you
1: went away your face was (laughs) in one corner of like this zoom stuff is so weird it's like the brady brady bunch when you got a bunch of people they're like (laughs) the brave like the intro song they'd have all their faces in a box you know um so all right a little bit last few minutes of the conversation let's talk about I'm i'm gonna lay out what. John and my group does. John's the president, but he asked me to try to explain it, and then he'll jump in if I miss something. But we have the Block Management Program here in Montana, which is our flagship program for providing public access to private lands for hunting. It's the biggest program in terms of acreage and probably dollars and any other metric. Number of animals killed that you want to quantify it by is probably the biggest program of its kind. We've got six million acres enrolled. It used to be seven million. It's going, it's declining for a variety of reasons, but uh, we're trying to we're trying to protect that program. The way the program works, we say it, you get paid certain num- number of dollars per hundred per day for allowing access, and what we're doing to support it is we're raising money from local businesses and just private individuals and using that money to buy appreciation gifts that we dole out we have block management appreciation dinners in the state that are run by our fish wildlife and parks so in every we have seven hundred seven seven hunting districts in the state and within each district there's two of these appreciation dinners so there's a total of 14 dinners and we're only operating in region 7 right now so there's talk of uh, starting chapters elsewhere in the state this is a brand new thing we're just getting started and we really hope it grows so we go to these dinners and we and we uh give away calf shelters and gift certificates to gift certificates to farm and ranch supply stores and uh uh, pneumatic pet fence post pounders right yep 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 uh and, and and that so that's one half of it and the other half of it is we have a website now it's called montanahunteraccess.org montanahunteraccess.org for anybody listening that wants to support the block management program you can show you can make a donation there of money or a donation of time so you sign up there and you'd be like, I'll come out to Eastern Montana, or maybe you already live in Eastern Montana, and I'll do a day or two of work this summer on a ranch, to say thanks for being enrolled in the program. You know, and that these, right now I think we have 40, 40 or so people that are said they'd come out. And we also have more than that. We've probably got 50 ranchers that said they, they would use the help. So yeah, the idea is we're going to send out crews and three, four people, go to each ranch and help them trim their bushes, mow their lawn, unclog pivot nozzles, fix fence, pick up trash, what, whatever they want done. So, the question I want to pose to you guys more than any other question is this is like, could this be, is this something that could be, tr- uh, could be done at scale across the country could it be done in wisconsin
7: i think absolutely and i love what you guys are doing out there i think that's that's fantastic i i hear a lot from our hunters and or our landowners that are enrolled in vpa and thap and they hear lots of praise from the people that are out there on the property i was just out uh, stocking cards on a turkey hunting property yesterday and uh a guy bought the landowner a pair of gloves because he was so thankful, you know, just to have the opportunity out there. We've got that's countless the kind of hunter that,
1: we need right
7: there. Yeah. And that's, and uh, talking with him specifically and many other people actually that are enrolled in the programs, there's kind of that lost art of gaining the access, you know, going out and working on the farm, bailing hay, you know, wow, like what you guys you are doing are, out there, fixing spot on.
1: You know, and what yeah, we at, always say when, you know, when we're talking about this stuff is that it is not the value of the thing you're giving even the it's the thought think just saying thanks you know Mm -hmm. that's the power it's that's the power in it it's it's i believe it's
2: how people were raised is to do what's right and respect the landowner and give back some of yourself for what he's giving you
7: exactly and uh going forward like what we could do uh I mean, I, I really like what you guys are doing. And I think that could be replicated or done maybe a little differently elsewhere, but we have, uh, you know, for instance, uh, chapter of pheasants forever, that's come to us with, you know, a small pot of money, that, that they want to put towards enrolling properties in their area. Uh, so whether it's, you know, gifts of, of money or time, I think that those are things that could really go a long ways with these programs and, uh, expanding the people that are enrolled in them and also just uh, a way for people to give back to the resource that they're using.
1: Yeah so if you're a Wisconsin hunter listening to this right now you know you could reach out to us at huntquietly at gmail.com and you know we could help you tell tell you a little bit more about what we've done and how we've accomplished it we're open to expanding our website to handle other parts of the country. The sign-up aspect of it. We're here to throw this I- idea out there. And so, if you're a Wisconsin hunter that's concerned about access, you know, here's something you could consider that's not being done, but could be real, could 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 potentially be impactful. So.
8: And these, I mean, these programs are important because a guy like me, I mean, I. I have young kids, you know, um, we obviously, you know, those, life gets expensive. I, I can't be one of them people that goes out and buys private land. So I utilize these these public land properties and I think they're important. So if we could start something like that here, I'd be all for helping with what time I could give to a, in between family and, and studying and work and whatnot. But I think that's important because that did cross my mind last year when I was out on this guy's property almost probably 10, 12 times over Turkey season is I wonder if there is any appreciation for these people. Like I just wanted to thank the guy because otherwise I might not have access, you know, um, cause everything else is kind of leased up or people just don't want you on their property around here right now. So, you know, uh, they're very important.
4: Yeah. I think, I think what you guys are doing out there is, is really great. Kudos to you and John, uh, Matt and, uh, I think, I, I, you know, the hunting community, it's really a small community. I know a lot of us think, yeah, man, there's a ton of hunters out there because, right, just that hunter interaction, but really really a small percentage when you start looking across the nation and across the world. I mean, um, you know, that's one of those luxuries and, and um, privileges that we have here in the United States is being able to hunt and, and unrestricted in that way. But I, I think one, one thing that's important too is that I know we're concentrating on those private access, but. I would extend that onto our public lands because our, our resources are thin and when we have our users are destroying parking lots and now we're spending time and energy and money on infrastructure repair versus the habitat management versus all those other things. And so I think that just extends across everything that we do make sure we're, we're leaving a positive image of, of our sport. And, and, you know, when we say we're conservationists, but then someone sees us trash in a parking lot, like, how does that, how does that work? So exactly. I think it, I'm it right. goes across all all properties that we're utilizing to to enjoy as hunters. Um, but you know it was interesting today I was had the privilege of being in the field and I was actually on a couple different MFL properties today and one was open so 80 acres open to public access just uh, north of Buffalo County, right so one of the hot spots in North America right to come shoot Pope and Young Buck and uh, here's a landowner that has it open to public access and uh, what's interesting is because of the hunter use, the neighbors have offered to pay the difference in that tax incentive for the landowner to close it. So it's not just the landowner's property that we're utilizing, but it's also how we're affecting the neighbors in that area too, as hunters. So if we're parking in someone else's driveway, rutting up their yards, you know, turning around all those things. And and that was the first time I heard that. So it was kind of interesting that I'm jumping on this podcast. And, um, but that was the first time I'd heard where neighbors were offering to pay the difference or pay more just they weren't asking to hunt it, but just have them close it so that they didn't have hunters in their, you know, in their rural neighborhood. So I
1: believe that there's got to be a way that somebody that allows public access that their life is better and has less hassle in it because they do it. You know, if we could get to that place, they could have huge because then they they get the they get the the value of knowing that they're helping. Their fellow citizen of the planet see a little bit more of this globe, but so much of it's off limits to people. You know, they get they get the knowledge that they're sharing what they have, and that coupled with their life is a little better. It's not more inconvenience; it's less inconvenience because people are showing respect and doing the right thing.
2: I I, I would like to think that the tendency or the trend of the new hunter coming on the scene is more represents itself uh, in history as a, as a type of person that's more appreciative than, than some of the guys that have been around for a while. It seems like if history could ever repeat itself uh, with these uh, uh, thankfulness to the landowners, I think the new age hunter ha- is bringing that forth more than I suspected as I sit back and look at it.
8: And that's, that starts with us too, you know, the passing that down, you know, I think yeah. you're, you're kind of alluding to that. So it, it really starts with us guys that have been around for a while, teaching that to the younger ones.
2: I, I you know, it, it's crazy to me that with our program here in Wisconsin, or I mean, uh, with Montana is that uh, uh, it's paid for by and large with non-resident license fee dollars. So. Why then would a non-resident want to come to this state and pay a lease company when he's already got acres of free land to hunt? It, you know what I mean? And it's like the, 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 the incentive for him to to come here to hunt is is the block management program. So so you know uh, it's one of those deals, like you said, you know, most people cannot afford to to lease lands. But in this particular state, it's already provided for them. So why would they do anything but utilize that? But they sure do. They do, yeah. And we're having a problem with it in this state.
4: there. Oh, and that's definitely something I'm sure you guys saw it out in, in Montana during, you know, the height of COVID. But that's definitely something that we saw here in Wisconsin just with, you know, the amount of population we have is um, the, the small amount of public lands that we have. And even these private lands open to public access we're really a, a salvation for a lot of people, a retreat that they could get out of their house and get out somewhere. Um, so again, it's, it's not just the hunting, it's providing that true social benefit and and just that mental cleansing, getting outside and, and experience the nature. So,
1: yeah, well, if there's nothing else, I'm going to close this down, but I want to say one last time, Wisconsin hunters, there's things you can do. There's things you can do. So get creative, get involved. You know, oh, it's not just it's it's hunters all
2: across. I I hope that the, uh, these messages can be reached. But I was
1: I was going for a state specific, heartfelt, state specific <laughs> yeah, yeah. message of encouragement. I Heart felt keeping including <laughs> the other forty nine states.
6: Thanks for getting the message out, Matt.
4: Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Matt and John for the opportunity to speak about our programs and i know there's a lot going on there so if you ever get more listener interest i know um, each program we'd love to come back and talk more with you um, oh, I appreciate that you.
1: yeah well yeah. yeah thank you guys so much for taking time out of your busy schedules do, to to explain your programs to everybody I, I i really appreciate it yeah thank you all right you guys you guys Thanks, have guys. a day
3: Bye-bye. bye bye take care thank bye. you